So you have a new podcast that's called Journalista. Correct. And it's it's all about your life story. What is the premise of that podcast? Well, the premise is I, I was a war correspondent for CBS News for a few couple of decades. And the majority of the story takes place in Nicaragua in the 80s. But the first couple of episodes we touch upon pre-journalism. I was a model in New York City. I... Um, then married a cartel guy, so I was in the game for a few years. And then I got out of that and wound up in Nicaragua covering a revolution. So it isn't just about war. War is sort of the backdrop. Mm -hmm. It's also about the insanity that was Cookie, the CBS office, the people rolling in and out, the partying. So is your real name Cookie Hood? No, it's Courtney Hood. But uh, okay. I've been called Cookie since the day I was born. So I've been scouring the internet all day and I couldn't find a damn thing. I was thing. on the DL for many years, so you're not going to find anything, really. So if we Google Courtney Hood, will we find something? No. 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 A Muppet comes up when you Google Cookie Hood, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then there's a hit piece that comes up that they did on me. I'm not sure if it's under Cookie Hood or Courtney Hood. But I think those are the only two things. We're working to remedy that now. So why, what, were you scrubbed from there or were you just completely, just, I was just, you just never did anything on the internet? And I was off the grid, you know, mm. when I was. So on your website, it says that you were responsible, responsible for breaking the Iran-Contra scandal. I was one of the people. I made it clear in the podcast that there were many people involved in that. You had print journalists, photographers, researchers, people in New York, Washington, obviously Miami, and then myself, news, um, because of my access to Nicaraguan officials at the time, I had complete, total, exclusive access to a lot of things that led to the Iran-Contra uh, scandal being, you know, broken. Uh, but I was one of the main people that did it. And you'll hear the story if you want to hear it or, you know, if you listen to the podcast. What was your specific role in breaking the story? Well, as a journalist and specifically a CBS News journalist, I was based in Nicaragua. I had a the best relationship of any journalist with the Sandinista government. So I pretty much kicked everybody's ass for over a decade, dozen plus years. And uh, it all came about, and it, that's the end of the podcast, where for, you know, almost a decade, people have been trying to prove that the U.S. was involved in overthrowing the Sandinista government by way of the Contras, which was, they were a rebel force, force being financed by the U.S. And since it was illegal to do that, our government, unbeknownst to me at the time, had to find ways to uh, get money quietly and so they did that by, we didn't know at the time, by selling arms mm. to our mortal enemy, Iran, 
taking that money and using that slush money, hush money to fund the Contras. When that part had, of, of the scandal broke, then they had to find another way to fund the Contras, which was then they made deals with drug uh, dealers and drug people, most of them friends of mine from my past, so that they were allowed to bring in cocaine, continue their business, bring it into the U.S., which at the time, you know, my friend Rick Ross, Ricky, out in L.A., he, they were getting the coke from, from the drug dealers and then converting it into crack cocaine. So that was another stream of revenue, revenue stream to fund the rebel forces that were going to overthrow they were trying to overthrow the Sandinista government. Right. So what were you specifically doing? Were you embedded, was, were you embedded with the Contras? Were you embedded no, with the Sandinistas? No, I was embedded with the Sandinistas. Okay. Nicaragua was Sandinistas, obviously. So I covered the war from their side. But of course, as, as, as any good journalist, I was also sent to El Salvador, Honduras. So I did cover the Contra side sometimes. How did CBS approach you and contract you to do this stuff? Well, it's funny because I had just gotten out of the game, moved to New Orleans to take care of my mom till she died, went back to Loyola. I had a kid uh, with my husband, the, the, the cartel guy. I said, I'll be back, and I never went back. When my mother died, I was like, let me go check out this, you know, revolution that's going on and so packed up my bags and packed up my one-year-old son and moved to Nicaragua so you know I still had a lot of friends and family there and uh, after about three months I kind of had it you know being in a war zone wasn't fun uh, everything was scarce you know from uh food to electricity to anything you could think of. So after three months, I said, well, let me throw myself a going away party and I'll head back to New Orleans and see what I do after that. So I threw myself this huge party, which had uh, military people, friends of mine from the, from the wealthy society, journalists, uh, you name it, everyone was there. Black, white, Latino, rich, poor, straight, gay, and, and very eclectic. That's what my parties were like. So at the party, I get approached by this lady from NBC, Cecilia Alviar, and she asked me if I'd be interested in working for NBC as a, you know, fixer translator. It sounded interesting, but at the same party was this... CBS guy, major producer, major partier, Larry Doyle comes up to me and we're partying at the party and he gives, he, he makes the same offer to me. Would you like to work for me at CBS? Translator fixer, you seem to be plugged into a lot of people by the guest list here. You speak both languages fluently, you know both cultures. And so I went with the party guy. He says, uh, go to the Intercontinental Hotel tomorrow. You'll get interviewed by Carla Farrell, and we'll see where it goes from there. 
So I showed up the next morning. She, you know, interviews me, two questions. How do you feel about roadblocks? I said, no problem. I can get in and out of anything. <laughs> she says, what is your biggest asset? For that one, I thought of about 30 seconds. And I said, adaptability. I can sleep in the jungle, in the shack, on top of coffee beans, like I could sleep at the Plaza Hotel in New York City. She says, you got the job. Come here tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, you're going up north. I thought I was going to Miami. So I dressed, you know, in heels, a suit. I walked in. She goes, what the fuck are you wearing? I said, well, you said I'm going north. I assumed it was Miami. She goes, no, you're going to the jungles up north with a camera crew. And you got to understand, Danny, I've, I didn't study journalism. I studied, you know, liberal arts education at Loyola University in New Orleans. So I just kind of bullshitted my way into being thrown into the jungle with a camera crew. And that was how I started. Wow. Yeah. So once you got to the jungle, what, what was your what Well, was your looking objective? for war. Looking for war. Look what we call bang bang. And so that's what we did. And, and you guys are taking photos. Well, no, video. Just video. Yeah, we're oh, T wow. we were TV, CBS oh, News. Cool. So I had a camera crew, cameraman, sound man, and a driver, and they thought I knew what I was doing. I had no clue. And so I confessed to the crew. I'm like, dude, I'm dudes, I've never done this before. Mm -hmm. And they're like, follow our lead, you'll be okay. And I, it turned into, you know, the gig of a lifetime. Um, I quickly adapted and became one of the top uh, war correspondents, war journalists of, of the decade. And um, the stories were many that I kicked ass, kicked all the network's asses. Uh, and um, I had, got a great career out of it. And a lot of fun, a lot of partying. And I started off as a model, went into the game, and then wound up breaking one of the biggest stories of the decade. So when it comes to... Yeah, you can drink. Okay. Um, when you got into the jungle and you started uh, reporting and filming some of these guys that were in the middle of the war zone, what, what was your sort of heat check... What, what did you? How did you like evaluate the situation of the well, ide ideology between the Contras and the Sandinistas? Well, what a lot of people don't understand is that by then it was a civil war, so it was brother fighting brother. Mm -hmm. So the Contras were Nicaraguans, the Sandinistas were Nicaraguans, and there would even be battles where they're yelling at each other with the same street slang, and you know, some of them knew each other. So it was insane because, you know, like any good civil war, it was, you know, people fighting their, their relatives, their neighbors, and it was, it, was, it was crazy. But my objective always, CBS's objective, as the rest of the other two networks, there were only three networks at the time, CBS, NBC, ABC. CNN was just starting out. 
Nobody gave a shit about them. Nobody gave them the time of day except me because I was the type of journalist. I helped everybody. It, nothing was a competition for me, which is why all the all the journalists wound up in my office. Mm. And I helped people. Why not? So, good Southern girl. But our objective, obviously, was finding war. And for the, all the years that I did it, we just covered the, the worst things that human beings can do to other human beings. And I'm talking about beheadings, torture victims, faces peeled off, um, just the worst. Out of all the stuff that you covered, what stood out the most to you? Just the death and the senseless death and killing. And, you know, I guess you could say I lost my faith with my first pile of dead bodies. And when I say piles, I mean piles. And women, children, babies. You know, it's one thing to see dead soldiers. It's another thing to see dead civilians. And death quickly came upon me in every way, shape, or form. And I always said to myself, I'm not going to become one of those people where it doesn't matter to me anymore, where I don't feel the shit that I'm seeing. I can curse, right? Of course. On the show. So I quickly got broken in to what war was really like. You know, I thought it was a game at first, you know, well, I'll be a fixer, I'll be a translator. I was, I became much more than that. And the guy that was running the CBS Bureau in Nicaragua, everybody hated him. So he was quickly replaced. Within six months, I was running the Bureau. Within a year, I was producing. And uh, I worked with everybody, morning news, evening news, weekend news. My favorite, though, was working with the big boys at 60 Minutes. That was awesome. There was a show we also did called West 57th. That was awesome. But um, I guess my main objective was finding the war for, for the U.S. and, you know, the audience to see because, unfortunately, that's what sells. It's crazy that, uh, you know, during the Reagan administration and, and all of the like secret funding of the Contra rebels and all that stuff that was happening back then was, you know, it was illegal technically, right? What, what they were doing was illegal. hidden. What they, was, they had to lie about it. But today, illegal. today you see it everywhere. Proxy wars are a normal thing. They are. They're still probably illegal. It just depends on how they do it. But. You can't legally, the U.S. legally cannot overthrow a government, you know? Mm -hmm. So like you said, by proxy, by, you know, subterfuge, yeah, they do it because that's the way they roll. I had a guy in here a couple months ago by the name of Rick Prado. He was a, uh, he was a CIA mercenary, a CIA assassin. And uh, he was sent down to uh, El Salvador, I think, to train the Contras. And he was down there with those guys for a few years. El Salvador was scary. Yeah. Scary. 
And um, one of the things that he pointed out was, uh, you know, despite all the news coverage in the U.S. that was painting the Sandinistas as the bad guys and the Contras as the good guys, um, you know, he was explaining to me some of the fighters in the Contras. They like this wasn't an ideological war for them. It was a personal thing for them. It was money. Whoever paid them the most, that's what it was. Ideologically, the Contras, few and far between, did it for ideologi ideological reasons. Mm -hmm. They were being paid and funded by the U.S. The Sandinistas, on the other hand, who were the underdogs, they were doing it Soviet for ideally, ideological reasons. Well, they were being funded by the Soviet Union as well. Well, right? this is what people don't understand. First you had the revolution, then you had the Civil War. The revolution was when the Sandinistas overthrew the dictatorship, the Somoza dictatorship. That was in 79. And all the years leading up to that, the war, it was a revolution. Mm -hmm. Sandinistas never thought they would win. And they weren't winning. And the U.S. obviously was backing the, the dictator, Somoza, because, you know, fighting for, you know, against communism and, and, and that. And up until an ABC reporter was shot and killed, that turned the tide. That told the U.S. stop. You know, by then 50,000 Nicaraguans had been killed. But that didn't, they didn't give a fuck. But one U.S. journalist killed, that's it. That turned the tide against the dictator and for the Sandinistas. Now, remember, the Sandinistas were a ragtag army, you know, and they won. They weren't expecting to win. So at the beginning, the U.S. was for the Sandinistas. They helped that government be set up, you know, they were for them until the Sandinistas decided that they were going to help poor people. Because, you know, we don't like to help the poor people. So the Sandinistas, their goal was, up until that point, it was something like 90% infant mortality, 90% uh, illiteracy. Only 1% of the country owned everything. So when the Sandinistas came in, and there were some rich kids that were part of the Sandinistas, they decided, we're going to change things. We're going to make education available to everybody. We're going to make health care available to everybody. You know, let's spread the wealth. Let's everybody gets a chance. And that's what they did. But when they start doing that, the U.S. doesn't like that. What what made them switch? Well, they didn't switch. Well, what made them adopt that sort of more? Because of that's what they were all about. Since the beginning? Since the beginning, they were about overthrowing the dictatorship because poor people were just fucking exploited and, and, and never had a chance. But when did, so when did... So their uh, goal was always, first of all, they didn't think they were going to win. Right. But if they had thought they were going to win, that was going to be their plan to help people, to create a more equal country, mm -hmm. government. That was always the plan. When was the Cuban Revolution? That was 78? 
No, no. The Cuban Revolution was in the 50s, the late 50s. And when Castro. Correct. That was all the late 50s, oh, early okay. 60s. So, like I said, when the Sandinistas inadvertently won, mm -hmm. that's when, you know, they started fulfilling their goals, mm. which is helping people. And that's when the U.S. didn't like it so much. So the stupid thing that we always do, we want to fix a problem. And by fixing it, we create a bigger and worse problem. So instead of just keeping along with the Sandinistas, we decide we don't want them anymore. They're communists. Well, they started working with Russia, though. No, they worked initially with the U.S. until the U.S cut them off mm -hmm. so when they get mm -hmm. cut off what the fuck are they supposed to right. do right the only people willing to help them cuba russia russia no. yeah so if the u.s wouldn't have tried to fix the problem mm. of helping the poor i see things would have just gone normally and they would have never gone to russia or cuba but once the U.S. decided, oh, we don't like these social programs, we don't like you helping the poor people, we don't like you, you know, helping infants not die after six months, you know, on Earth. So that's what happened. We, we trying to fix a problem, we created a bigger problem. Mm. So then, yes, the Sandinistas were being helped by Russia, Cuba, because they had no other choice. Right. And that, at that point, we at had to start. At that point, then we got Reagan, you mm. know, the freedom fighters, you know, we got to overthrow this government, but quietly. Mm. On the DL, nobody's supposed to know. Right. So this guy, Rick Prado, that I, I mentioned to you, who was, uh, he was covertly the sent down guy. there. He was covertly sent down there. He was like a C, he was like a knuckle dragger type guy. He wasn't a, he wasn't a he spy. Was a, he was a. Not a spook. He, well, he was. Well, he, eventually, he became a spy. Uh -huh. But if he was originally contracted to be to train the Contras in military combat and train them how to use rifles. Well, if he was in El Salvador, he was training right wing death squad people. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he wasn't training the Contras. The Contras were mostly trained in Honduras. Well, he was some in some. He was in Honduras too. He was also training Mosquito Indians. Yeah, they came from the co the coast of right. Nicaragua. But El Salvador was a fucking scary place, dude. Yeah. For journalists, too. Not just for everybody. There's this scene in a Woody Allen movie. I don't know if you ever saw it. Bananas. Yes. And so there's a scene in it. The soldiers, U.S. soldiers are on a plane. They're going to get dropped, parachuted into this third world banana republic. So one soldier says to the other, whose side are we fighting for in this one? And the other guy, the other soldier says, look, the US, they're not taking any chances this time. Half of us are going with the rebels and the other half of us are going with the government. And it was like that. Nicaragua, we were funding the rebels. In El Salvador, we were funding the military government. So each country, it was different. Mm. So the countries where right-wing military was being funded those were the scary ones, mm. okay? Those were the scary governments. Nicaragua in the whole war, no journalist ever got killed, not one. 
El Salvador by the hundreds because the military, right-wing military, they were after the journalists. Fuck these guys. We're going to kill them. Really? It was, like I said, it was scary. But the, the Sandinistas weren't like that towards the journalists. Why not? Because this was their goal. We have to protect these journalists, especially U.S. journalists, because not only we're fighting a war against the U.S., we don't want journalists to be killed on our watch to make things worse, mm. you see? So they protected us. We didn't know how much they were protecting us. I didn't know how much they were protecting me till years later. Apparently, there was always someone protecting me, whether they were dressed in a military uniform or civilian clothes, but there was always someone that was sent by the government and their job was, you die before she gets a scratch. So that's why I'm here with you today. Because wow. uh, they took care of me. Even though I was wounded many times, I was shot down in a Russian helicopter. I was what? taken, I was taken, yeah, once you start listening to the rest of the podcast. What's that story? You're going to hear some fucking insane stories, dude. <laughs> So the helicopter crash, it was on one of our junkets going into the, you know, 10 days, seven day, 10 day junkets where we get flown in and dropped into the jungles and we go with, you know, uh, the troops to look for war. So on this particular one, it started off with a two propeller plane that was going to fly us in to a base where we would then be flown in a helicopter even deeper. So it starts off with this two propeller plane trip where I get caught in the exhaust of the back of the back of the plane. When the pilot went to go turn it on, I got flung up in the air, then thrown down by the exhaust of this plane. And I was wounded. I mean, I was a hematoma from neck, to, 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 to my feet. So they fly me, they dump my, myself and the crew in this military base, and the military doctor said she can't go on the helicopter and into the second half of the junket into the jungles with the soldiers. She can't go, she's too wounded. But nobody told, the doctor didn't tell anybody that. So an hour later, they're rounding up my crew and myself, and they load us into the, the helicopter, Russian helicopter, to take us into the jungles. And then they dump us there. We're gonna be on a 10-day junket with the soldiers. I'm so fucked up, physically wounded, but I was always a good, you know, uh, person to have because I never yelled, ouch, ever. I was always out there proving that I could do anything as well as or better than any guy. I couldn't yell, ouch. I couldn't say, you know, I can't do it. So we went on this junket for 10 days. And after the end of it, we're going to get picked up by helicopters and flown back to civilization. So they fly a helicopter in, the Sandinistas, pick us up, and midair, we get shot down. 
I didn't know what was going on. I heard three somethings, and if it had been a SAM surface-to-air missile, I wouldn't be here with you today. It was some lowly Contra soldier from the other side shooting at the helicopter because it's a Russian helicopter. They don't give a fuck if there's journalists on board. They wouldn't even know that there was journalists on board. So I remember screaming to one of the soldiers in the helicopter, that sounds not a good sound. He goes, no, we're going down. And I'm like, what the fuck do you mean we're going down? And of course, that's, you know, that thing where they say that people's lives flash in front of them. Mm -hmm. Not me. I was just saying to myself, you stupid fucking bitch. You're finally in a situation you cannot talk yourself out of. You can't uh, schmooze yourself out of. I'm going to fucking die. And boom, 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 like 30 seconds it took for it to come down. My, I grabbed my crew. I said, look, we're going to do it like in the movies. We're jumping out of this thing before it hits the ground. And we, because the worst thing is a journalist to cover are helicopter and plane crashes. We called them crispy critters because you're just burned. You're just fucked. You're dead and you're burned. So we jumped out before. How, how just, high above the ground were I, you? I don't know. I, I never found out <laughs> because, you know, the rest of the crew, they were the, other, the soldiers, they were killed. We jumped out and, you know, running, not even looking back. But we, land, we, we, we fell into a field, a, a valley. So that's even worse because we knew once the helicopter would blow, hit the ground and blow, we're fucked because we're in a valley. So I'm trying to climb up. My crew's trying to climb up. And right before I get to the top, I cannot, Danny, I could not take one more breath. I could, I, I could not take that last grab to get me out of that valley. And all of a sudden, there's a hand that reaches out up at the top and pulls me up. It was one of the soldiers that had been on the 10-day junket with us. They saw the whole thing happening. Saved my life, saved the crew's life. Next thing we know, the comandante from that region, he heard what had happened. Remember, no journalist can be killed on their watch, Sandinistas. He sent three helicopters, also Russian, but smaller. All of a sudden, I see the soldier. We're wounded. We're fucked. We're fucked up. Internal shit, internal bleeding, you name it. Remember, I was already wounded from the beginning of the trip. I see these soldiers with machetes clearing up this hilltop that we're on. They're chopping down trees. They're, it was incredible. Next thing you know, three helicopters land. They took, put each of us in, in a different helicopter because they're not going to risk all three of us being in one helicopter, and they got us out. What's up, guys? I'm super psyched to introduce to you another product that I've been using for years now that was also recommended to me by the world-renowned nutritional scientist, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, and it is called Keto Brains. Keto Brains Nootropic Creamer is a way to perfectly dial in your morning beverage to bring you razor-sharp focus on demand. I start out every day with Keto Brains in my cup of coffee to combat the midday slump, and I use it for pre-workout. 
Keto Brain's nootropic creamer has efficacious doses of focus-inducing alpha-GPC, lion's mane, alpha-wave-promoting L-theanine, and ketone-stimulating C8-MCT powder. And all of those high-functioning nootropics are packed into a delicious, creamy coconut powder. It tastes amazing, it's a keto nootropic powerhouse, and it tickles all the right neurotransmitters to give you the flow and jitter-free energy with absolutely zero crash. There's no dosage tricks involved, it's just one scoop is a full serving, you can put it in your coffee, your tea, put it in your water, whatever you want, and you get 30 full doses per package. There's no pills and there's absolutely no waiting for it to work. It kicks in like that. You can keep your brain razor sharp, primed, and ready for action with Keto Brain's nootropic creamer. Whether you're an entrepreneur juggling multiple projects, a student studying for exams, or you're an athlete that's trying to optimize your training, Keto Brain's will not let you down. All right, here, I'm going to list all the ingredients contained in Keto Brains and what they do. It increases ketone production via AGC8 MCT powder. It increases acetylcholine and HGH production via 300 milligrams of alpha GPC. It increases GABA and alpha wave production via 250 milligrams of L-theanine. And it increases BDNF and NGF via 500 milligrams of lion's mane mushrooms. And these are all carefully sourced and third-party tested ingredients. This stuff quite literally increases acute brain function, protects your brain and mitochondria long-term, and last but not least, it makes your coffee delicious. If you're interested in Keto Brains and you wanna get a big discount, just go to the link in the description below ketobrains.com and use the promo code danny20 when you check out again that's ketobrains.com hit the link below and use the promo code danny20 at checkout back to the show and cbs was always very good about when you got sick or you got hurt they'd fucking fly in a Lear, learjet medevac learjet get you out of the city and get you to safety and they got the three of us out. Once we landed in Managua, the capital, then CBS sent the Learjet to get us out and took us to Miami. The three of us were in the hospital for maybe two, three weeks. It was all a blur. And then they, they said, well, you still need to recuperate more. Let's set you up in the best hotel in Coconut Grove. <laughs> and I'm like, sure, you know. So we proceeded to recuperate there, partying and everything for the next few weeks. So. What it, year was this? 87. In Coconut Grove. Yes. No short of party. Grand Bay Hotel. <laughs> oh, yeah. And remember my ex-husband, the cartel guy, he was living in Miami. So he was taking care of me all, you know, myself and the crew taking care of us. And yeah, we threw some great parties what, at the hotel. Specify cartel guy. Well, my husband worked with Pablo Escobar. And my husband worked with two of, of, of the biggest uh, dealers, I guess, at the time. Norring Manessis and Danilo Blondon. They, their characters were in Kill the Messenger. Do you remember that movie? Mm -hmm. So they were the two guys in that movie. They used their real names in the movie. Norbing Manessis, Danilo Blandon. They had worked for years with my husband. These were my friends. These were guys I grew up with. Danilo was my son's uncle. Norbing was the best man at my wedding, you know? And so I knew my husband and all of them from childhood, but we reconnected when I left New York City after I was modeling for a few years. We mm -hmm. left that part out. 
So I was a model in New York City. When I got tired of it, I went to Miami, and that's where I re-met my old friend, who later became my husband. And so I got caught up in that world. How did your husband get involved in the Medellin cartel? He just, he started, you know, they, they, were, they were all big guys in Nicaragua. Uh -huh. And Nicaragua was a stopping point. Right. So while I was out modeling, they were moving up in the ranks. And so by the time I left New York City and went down to Miami, there was full-blown operation, so. Wow. Yeah, so I had a lot of great, interesting, dangerous, scary to other people, not scary to me, friends. And so that's how I got involved in that life. So were you guys still married when you were doing all this reporting in Nicaragua? No. No. Remember, I left him when my mother got sick in New Orleans. Oh, okay. I left him That's out. That's when you went down. Went down and never went back. Mm. But when I left him, I left with a shitload of blow, a suitcase filled with money, about a million bucks cash. Kept it under my childhood room, under my mattress. Because remember, I'm taking care of my mom. They have no idea what's going on or what I've been involved in. And I went back to Loyola. I got a one-year-old kid. So you brought your kid a suitcase full of cash and a duffel bag full of blow. Yeah. And so went back to Loyola, finished getting my, my second degree. What were you going to do with all the coke? Were you going to sell it? No. You're gonna, you were going to do it? Yeah, well, yourself? I had friends. Remember, I grew up in New Orleans. We went out every night. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. This was just personal. Personal use. <laughs> we went out every single night. And remember, I'm taking care of my dying mother. I got a one-year-old kid. I'm still partying. It was... How old were you? By then... 27, 20, oh, wow. 20, 25, maybe, something like that. Good 24, Lord. 25. Then my mother dies, and that's when I went to Nicaragua. And that's how I fell into the CBS thing. Look, you're going to find out when you hear that podcast and, and, and talking to me, I'm always where something fucking happens. It's not that I'm making things happen. I just happen to be where there's always something happening. Mm. My first night in New York City as a model was the night the lights all went out on the whole Eastern Seaboard. The black, the most famous blackout. Right. <laughs> that was my first night in New York City. You know, and so my life's always been like that. What made you such a rugged woman? You're like, in, you're industrial strength. Well, I think it was because of the way I was raised. I wasn't raised with love so much as I was raised with survival. I had to survive. My parents had eight kids, you know. My dad was an airline executive traveling all the time. My mother had her things. So we were kind of raised on survival. We kind of took care of ourselves. And I had five brothers. And so, again, looking for that... You know, you hear the same story, the girl that's looking for the father's approval. I always had to prove that I could do anything as well as or better than any man. 
And I always would tell people I got balls bigger than any man, you know? And so it served me well, that survival mode that I was raised in. And of course, the traveling and speaking several languages fluently and education. I had everything. I had the white privilege, the education privilege, money privilege, you name it. But I was a badass. I was, I liked the dark side more than the right side. Mm. So I always hung out with, you know, shady people, people that were way older than, than myself. And the husbands were older, but they kept getting younger as I, you know, as I aged. But how many husbands have you had? About four. Four? Oh, it's not yeah. bad. Not bad. And I'm married to one now. We've been married 20 years. How much longer he's got? Has he got? No, I'm staying with oh, him. Oh, he's, he's for real. Yeah, he's 25 years younger. Okay. I thought you might trade him in for a younger guy. That's what he thought. <laughs> but I'm too old. You know, like CBS wanted me to go back when there was this revolution spring a few years ago. I don't know if you remember, you know, the Arab spring. There were mm, yeah, countries. Yeah, yeah. So CBS was like, were you interested in going back? I'm like, fuck no. And they're like, why not? I said, I can't run anymore. You can't cover war and not be able to run. Right. You can't be old and not, you know, and, and, and cover wars. Mm. So I got out in the mid 90s, I guess, when the wars on this side of the world ended. Because once the wars ended, nobody gave a shit about Latin America. So I was basically out of a job. Wow. Yeah, because war is big business. War makes the news. But once the wars ended in Latin America, you know. There's there a was... lot of crazy shit going down in Latin America right now, though, with the cartel wars. A lot yeah, of crazy shit. Yeah, that's been consistent for decades. Those guys got all kinds well, of crazy weapons now. But it, But it went... Again, we tried to fix a problem and we created a worse problem. It started with the Colombians. The Colombians, they at least had ethics, okay? The Colombians were like this. You owe them 100 grand, your buddy owes them 1,000. Who are they going to kill? Who? I'm asking you. They're going to kill the guy who owns less money, who owes less money. Correct. Right. So that the one that owes the 100 money. grand, they had a form of ethics, Okay. Well, so, yeah. A form of ethics. Well, it's more just, you know, rationality. Correct. But it wasn't just, that's not the only example. They, 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 they went about their business in a more uh, business-like manner. Exactly. Right. Okay. Get the fucking money. And, and so what happened was we decide we're going to stop that. Okay. And so... Stopping the Colombians, it just transferred all the shit to Mexico. Right. And these motherfuckers were ruthless, like you said. They The weaponry, they don't give a shit about anybody. I'll kill you, your whole fucking family, your dog, everybody, you know? And so that was not the, life, the game part that I was in. I wasn't in with the Mexicans. It was Colombians. And the classy ones. The classy ones, yeah. The, class, the classy uh Yeah, murderers. and the fact that I was a woman and I was at the table with these guys. And women are not at the table 
with these guys. You know, it's a guy business, guy run business. But I was like the little mascot, you know. I knew the big players. Pablo was at my wedding. Pablo gave me. Pablo Escobar was at your wedding? Yeah. And he gave me. Was he uh, in the wedding? Not in the wedding, okay. but he did get, supply the party favors for the wedding. So I remember oh, that was I flew. Nice of him. Yeah, I flew in my girlfriend from New Orleans. We were grinding for two days, filling up two and three grand bottles as the party favor. You know the favors when you walked in. Chipito Areas from Santana, the bongo player. He was the uh, he was the best man. Norbert Manessis was big, big, big player. He gave me away at the wedding. The wedding was at his house. So uh, yeah. So when people showed up to your wedding, like we the, gave them the, the, the grand bag. bottle. They got a goodie bag with a three little... grand bottle, two grand, three grand bottles. You know, and did it, you at least label them with like the people's no, names? No, we just put bows on them because oh, okay. you know at parties you never know who's going to show up. Right, I thought like because when you go to the reception, at least no. they, you sit down, you have your name there. No, we no. just put little bows on. Oh, that's that's yeah, and uh, that was a wedding for the ages for sure. There's a lot more about to that wedding, but you'll hear it in the podcast. Listen, everybody's got to go to the Journalista podcast. You're just getting bits and pieces right now of what's in it. We've got early cookie, mid cookie, late cookie, and each era of cookie is as insane as the one before it. And so I really suggest to people get on board to you know on the journalista train it's it's bonkers absolutely it's bonkers so explain to me what happened i mean you you mentioned it a little bit briefly with the abc journalist who was killed um not necessarily like explain to me like what happened on the ground leading up to it how did it happen and then how did that change the U.S. The, the, the U.S. is the public perspective okay. from the U.S. and the rest of the world. So at that point, it's a revolution. Sandinistas are fighting uh, uh, the dictatorship. We already went through this. Right, right. So there's journalists there. Most of my friends were there. This is before I got, you know, I became a journalist, de facto journalist. Um, so there had been... A couple of years of fighting. Oh, remind me to tell you the the firing squad story. That's okay. before that. But anyway, it's 1979. Bill Stewart is one of many journalists there in Nicaragua. And he's with his camera crew and a driver who later became my driver for CBS. And... They're out looking, you know, for bang, bang, like any good war correspondent is looking for. He's got a translator with him, too. So they run into some trouble. They run into a neighborhood in the city, the capital. And remember, this, the, the, the dictator's soldiers, the Guardia, they'd been up for weeks. They'd been, give, been given methamphetamines. They'd been up. They, they got to fight, stay awake. So these guys are already shaky. And so Bill Stewart hops out of the van with the translator and he goes up to, you know, where these Samosa guardsmen are. 
and he he asks them if he can continue on to you know keep covering the war. Well, one of the Samosa guardsmen thinks he recognizes the translator. He thinks wrongly. We find out later. He thinks that the translator is a Sandinista. So they take him around the corner and they shoot him. But Bill Stewart doesn't know that. And the camera crew and the driver are still in the van and they're filming from the van, you know, because you just roll, right. something might happen. Yes, exactly. So at this point, they figure, well, if this translator was a Sandinista, this Bill Stewart is up to, to no good. So he doesn't speak Spanish, dude. So they tell him to get on the ground, face down, which any war correspondent, it's happened to. You get, you do what you, they tell you to do, and you're going to walk away, hopefully. And most of the time you do. So they tell him to lay down, and he does. And you'll see the video, dude. Look that up. What's it called? The Bill Stewart killing. Bill Stewart killing. So let's, you let's, see. Let's, let's pull it up and look at it. Well, I'll, I'll censor it on the so actual podcast. You but. see the soldier putting the AK to his head, shoot him, and the force of it, the, his body like went up and down. So at this point, the camera crew who are still in the van, that's it. You got, that's right. it. Is this it? Yeah, they see, they tell him, go down, lay down. He doesn't think anything's going to happen. And right there, he kicks him and watch what he does. The AK, there it oh. is. So this is what happens. Now listen to this story. The camera crew is filming. This might even be their footage. They're filming. The driver knows better. He knows that they're next. The camera crew's freaking out. So the driver says to the crew, do not get out of this van. Mm -hmm. Shut the fuck up. Don't talk to anybody. Let me handle it. Right. So the driver gets out the van, goes up to the soldier, this guy, and says to him, dude, you just fucked up. We're from Samosa TV. You just fucked up. We're from your boss's TV station. But don't worry. We're not going to say a thing. You let us pick up this body and you let us get the fuck out of here. We're going to say that the Sandinistas killed him. And the soldier says, okay. So my, the driver picks up Bill's body, flings it over his shoulder, gets in the van with the camera crew at this point. They're freaking out. And he hightails it out of there, straight to the Intercontinental Hotel. It's the first time in history that a camera, that a network has exclusive, explosive video. And what did ABC do? They gave it to every journalist that was there. Every camera crew, every network from around the world, everyone got a copy of that footage. And they knew they had to get that footage out of the country before Samosa and everybody realized what had happened. 
So the journalists as a, as, as a group, foreign journalists from all over the world, they decide we're boycotting this fucking dictatorship. We're out. They left Nicaragua. The, the video got out. That night, every network put it on the air. Same video. Every network. And remember I told you earlier, by then 50,000 Nicaraguans had already been killed, but nobody gave a fuck. Right. But the U.S. audience saw that. So, yeah. And it, it was an ABC cameraman, a very well-respected cameraman, very well-known. That changed the course of who we were going to help. So we went from the, helping the dictator, because, you know, fighting for communism. But then this happened. Well, maybe this dictator's not such a good guy. That's when we decided to finance and help the Sandinistas win. So what we did was we stopped helping Somoza, the dictator. Mm -hmm. We started helping the Sandinistas. And this is the moment that happened. This is the moment that the tide turned. This was the moment where the U.S. decided we got to cut our losses here with the dictator that we've been, remember the U.S. had been financing and helping this dictator for two gen, two generations. Right, right. Since his like the 30s, right? The 30s. Yeah. His father was the first one. Franklin Roosevelt, FDR, referred to the first Samosa. He's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. And then it was this one, the son, and then his son, third generation, was already prepping, you know, to take over. So after this happens, Samosa's days are numbered. There's a movie called Last Plane Out or something like that. But anyway, he's out. He leaves the country. The Sandinistas, this ragtag army of revolutionaries, misfits some, come rolling into the Capitol, and they won. They didn't know they were going to win. They didn't know what the fuck they were going to do. So they were, where do they all meet? In the lobby of the Intercontinental Hotel. Now, episode three, the Intercontinental Hotel is a character in all this because that's where everything happened from the 70s when Howard Hughes, the billionaire, stayed there to the earthquake to the revolution, to the civil war, all the journalists. So they come rolling into the Capitol and they're in the lobby. Okay, now what do we do? Okay, well, you're going to be the president. You're going to be the vice president. You're going to be the minister of defense. You're going to be the state department. You're going to be state security. And that's how it happened. Nine guys. Some of them rich kids that I grew up with. Some of them, you know, lifelong revolutionaries from humble beginnings. And that's how it started. Wow. So that's what brought in the Sandinista regime. So going back to the killing of Bill, what was his last name again? Stewart. Bill Stewart. What was his relationship with Somoza? What was he reporting on? He was reporting on the revolution. The Sandinista revolutionaries trying to overthrow 
the Somoza dictatorship. He was just a journalist. He had no relationship with either side. As as look, a maybe good- I'm thinking of a different journalist. I'm, I'm thinking of it. There, there was a story in your podcast. There was a journalist that was killed, and people speculate that Samosa killed him because no, that's of stuff- another that that's that's what brought on the revol. That's what the revolution was about. The revolution oh, that was before this. that was before oh, okay, this. Got it. That's why I always there was this Nicaraguan editor, newspaper man, and he was always like the rival of Samosa. Got he was it. more left wing and he, you know, helped the people, not help just the rich, even though he was rich. And so not Samosa, but Samosa's son. My speculation is Samosa's son, the third generation with his buddies that were mercenaries, Mike the mercenary. These guys would be rolling in the Capitol in tanks with the bullets, you know, here and I suspect it was the son that had the this guy killed, the journalist killed, the Nicaraguan journalist, because Samosa wouldn't have been that stupid. He had this rivalry that was, he could say, well, look, I'm not a dictatorship. I allow this guy to be, you know, the opposition with his opposition newspaper. Okay, so was it, was it a situation to where this guy sort of reported on he, negative things that Samosa would do, but uh, not too bad? So Absolutely, Samo- he would report stuff. Right. And Samosa, they were friends at were one friends, point. Right. Like, look, your job is to paint me in a bad light, but not, don't no, go, don't no, go, don't go. It wasn't, over. no, it wasn't like that. Okay. They had been friends, but then later their ideologies just were too far apart. So Chamorro did what he had to do, uh, calling out the Samosa regime, and Samosa did what he had to do. But it was a rivalry that... But it was useful for Samosa. Right. Exactly. That's, That's it exactly. Right. Most people don't get it. Right. So when he gets killed, that's when, you know, all hell breaks loose, then the revolution... I always say that it's a revolution that started off with the death of a journalist and ended with the death of a journalist, which was Bill Stewart. That was the end of the revolution. So what happened with Samosa after that journalist got killed? The first journalist. It's war. It, there's, it's war. So the Sandinistas are fighting. That you know? got my brain spinning. Once I... once. Y- that story came out that that journalist got killed. People said, oh, it's obviously Samosa because this guy reports on all the negative shit. And he calls out Samosa. some people still think it was Samosa. Other people think it was, you know, someone else. I've always been of the belief that Samosa was, a, he was a dictator, but he was a very smart man. Right. And he he was too smart to kill this guy. So that's why my brain automatically went to, and, okay, that guy's murder was a covert op. And he had his Achilles heel. His weakness was family and friends. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. What are some of the things you want to keep the same about yourself or your life in 2024? What part of your life are you already grateful for or what is something that you're already proud of? Around New Year's, we all get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on things that we're already doing great. Therapy helps you find your strengths so you can ditch those extreme resolutions and focus on minor changes that can really stick. For me, it's helpful to focus on wins or positive experiences that I'm already grateful for. And this isn't just for people who have experienced trauma or PTSD, it's for everyone. This is a daily ritual I like to use to keep my mind healthy and free of negative influences. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a questionnaire to get connected to a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash Danny Jones to get 10 months off your first month. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com forward slash Danny Jones to get 10 months off your first month. It's linked below. Now back to the show. Now let's go back to when I'm 19 and there's skirmishes. This is before the revolution. The Sandinistas are way, way underground. Okay. Rich kids were underground. They were also fighting in the, in the mountains. So I go on a junket, a road trip with some friends to the mountains and we come back. December 27th, 1974. And remember, the, the earthquake destroyed Managua in 72. So Samosa, instead of rebuilding the city, he's buying up all the land. So the city's cr crumbled. They never rebuilt it. So 74, remember, I'm one of the rich kids. Uh, it's, my family was part of the society. I'm one of the rich kids. I'd go to school, you know, Loyola, I was at Loyola in New Orleans and I'd go back and forth vacation. So we come back from the mountains and we're coming into our neighborhood, myself with three guys. And as we're passing in front of one of the houses in my neighborhood, two taxis are coming this way, poor people taxis, doors fly open, masked gunmen, AK, do, 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 do. kill all the bodyguards and the drivers that are outside of this party. It was a party where my relatives are at. Killed they, everybody. They killed the people outside. Okay. They go in to take the people inside hostage because they know Samosa's Achilles heel. There's friends of Samosa in the party, relatives of mine. So... We're like seeing this shit. What the fuck just happened? It's like a movie. So we parked the vehicle. I don't know that one of my friends brought a pound of weed for New Year's Eve, and it's in the car. So after a few hours, by then, Samosa had sent the guardsmen. They're fighting with the, with the Sandinistas that are inside. Nobody really knows what the fuck's going on. So the driver, my, 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 my friend says to, to the Samosa guardsman, can we just move our car to our house, which is across the street? He said, yes, but we'll have to check the vehicle. So I'm just standing there and look, and they find a pound of fucking weed in the car. So the Samosa guardsmen immediately assume we're Sandinistas and we're there to distract them from what's going on in the house. Next thing I know, within two minutes, we're loaded up in a, in a military vehicle and we're taken to the prison. Now, this had never happened to anyone. Who's taken you to the prison again? Samosa guardsmen. Samosa guardsmen. Because they think we're Sandinistas, okay? Because we got a pound of weed. They think we're a distraction. We're, 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 we're you know, here, come look at this. Come look at us while something could happen got it. in the house, the okay. party that they took over. The Sandinistas took over. Next thing I know, I'm heading to the fucking prison where people are tortured and killed, not people like us, poor people. Right. So my friend says, don't speak Spanish. We're just going to say you're an American. We'll get you out. 
Another one of my buddies, he's crying. We're not going to get out of this alive. And so they take us to the prison, big fat commandante. He gets it in his head that I'm Patricia Hearst. You remember her? Mm -hmm. She was the, the girl, William Randolph Hearst's daughter, that was missing at the time. For like two years? And I could hear him saying, I got Patricia Hearst. So at that point, I couldn't, I couldn't stop myself. So I start speaking in Spanish, and I'm speaking his kind of Spanish. I'm not Patricia Hearst. I'm an American from New Orleans. I go to Loyola. But by then, they threw us in the prisons. I'm thinking they're going to torture us. We don't know. But the Sandinistas knew that Samosa's Achilles heel was his friends and family. So he wants to save his friends that are in that party. A good dictator would say, fuck them. Let them kill them. We're going to kill everybody. He didn't. That was his, his, his weakness, we want to say. And we can't get out of the prison because nobody could give orders but him. And he knows that we're safer in the prison than out on the street. Next thing I know, I don't know that my family's getting us all out. But the guardsmen in the prison, they know that we're going to be released, but they want to fuck with us one last time. So they put the four of us against the wall with six soldiers, weapons. And I'm like, and the three guys I'm with, they're crying. Oh, they're going to be. I'm like, y'all shut the fuck up. I'm looking at the soldiers. I said, I'm going to act like in the movies. You know when they say you, 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 you get some, a relationship with the guy with the gun, look him in the eye, start talking to him, then he can't pull the trigger, right? So that's what I'm doing. I'm convincing these guys. Look, guys, my whole family knows I'm wild and crazy, but no one is going to believe firing squad, okay? I'm from New Orleans. I go to Loyola. I'm a sophomore. And I just keep them talking. They weren't going to kill us, but we thought they were going to kill us because they're aiming at us. And we got released a couple hours later. They never, they never like shot them. They never shot the guns off. No. No. But they were aiming, and we didn't know. I mean, we thought we were going to be killed. So that was, <clears throat> that was what led up to that party that the Sandinistas, you know, took over because Samosa was always had that weakness. So what happened when they finally, how did they come to finally So release what them? happened was the Sandinistas, so Samosa's got his friends in there, so he's not going to get them killed. Right. So the Sandinistas want all Sandinista political prisoners released. They want $2 million in cash. They want a bus and they want the, um, the bishop so-and-so to be, you know, the intermediary to get them out. Mm. So as we're being brought back in the next day, released from the prison, and we're going back that same route that we did, you know, the night before, there's a bus coming out. And it's got all the political prisoners. It's got the Sandinistas that were in hoods that had killed. And it's got the bishop. It's got not two million. I think it's got one million in cash money. And I remember seeing this one guy in the bus. 
And he kept looking at me, and I kept looking at him. Turns out, years later, he became the president of Nicaragua, Ortega. President Ortega, he's still president. President for life now. So everything that they fought against, that dictator, they have now become. So now the Sandinistas, Ortega's in power. He has so much more money than Somoza ever had. He controls the whole country. And it's like, do they not know how this story is going to end? He's going to be killed one day. He'll be assassinated. Why really? You... By who? He's now got this whole country. He's president for life. Like, that's the legitimate... Like he is, there's no elections planned. Well, for when the, they do have the, the elections, future? he always wins. Okay. Okay. Right. So he has become now what he fought against. Right, right. He's the new dictator. Okay. Mm -hmm. So listen, I always tell people history just <clears throat> keeps repeating itself. Yeah. The only things that change are the faces and the names. Right. But the history just, it just keeps repeating itself. Power vacuums always get filled. And now you've come to realize that I'm always where something happens, right? I've given you right now from 72 to the helicopter crash, 87, and all the different things that I was involved in. So I don't know if that's a good thing or it's a bad thing, but I'm always fall right into something, mm. whether it be a, a war, a revolution, a scandal. And you ask how the Iran-Contra thing came about. What was my big piece of blowing that? So the Sandinistas for 10 years want to prove to the world that it's the U.S. that's funding these Contras to overthrow them. But there's no proof. How did they know? Because the Contras are Nicaraguans. And they know that they're being trained in Honduras. In fact, they, some of them are being trained here in Florida. You know, it was, it was sort of common knowledge. But because the government's not going to say they're doing it, there's no proof of it. So even the journalists, we all knew what was going on, but nobody could prove it. So in 86, October, I think it is, I'm in Miami on R&R, &R, but I'm still hanging out at the CBS office. I get a call from my assistant. He says, you're not going to fucking believe this. The Sandinista shot down a plane. It had to be a CIA plane because one, every the two, the pilot and another guy were killed. But the kicker, the guy that would kick the stuff out the plane, the cargo guy in the back, and he's kicking out, you know, propaganda. He's kicking out uh, uh, boots, supplies for the Contras. He happened to bring a a parachute with him, so he parachutes out. Plane crashes. He parachutes out, and he's hiding in the jungles. He's in Sandinista territory. He knows he's going to be killed eventually. So the Sandinistas find him. And again, it was a plane that was shot by a lowly soldier. It was a, a shoulder-held missile. This pilot was killed. The other guy was killed. Eugene Hazenfu survives. <laughs> There's a famous picture of him being, you know, caught 
They bring him in. Again, he thinks he's going to be killed. Yeah, the look on his face. Well, in you that saw, photo. yeah, you you heard episode he nine. Looks like a, he looks like he knows he's a dead man. He knows he is until he sees that there's journalists. But not, the journalists aren't there that day. So I get a call from Nicaragua and I'm like, dude, you got to come back. They caught this guy, you know, proof positive, blah, 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 blah. So what do I do? I call 60 Minutes. I call my boys there. Don Hewitt, the creator, Mike Wallace. I said, listen, this, this, this just happened. Why don't we go into Managua, interview this guy, put him on the air confessing Sunday night, because Monday they putting him on trial. And we all know he's going to be found guilty. Come pick me up and let's do it. Don Hewitt, Mike Wallace, fuck yeah, let's go get her. They get the Learjet, come pick me up in Miami. I get some supplies from the ex-husband, because you know me, I got to get my supplies. Some blow? Get the blow, because the Sandinistas had wiped out drug use, and, and, and I would have to fly to the U.S. to get blow and bring it back to the third world country. The Sandinistas were on board with the, with the drugs? So... That's Damn. another story. So these guys look like kids. They were That's all crazy. kids, dude. They look like teenagers. They were kids. And so 60 Minutes picks me up. We fly into Nicaragua. If you heard episode nine, you you know what happened. They take they, they got poor Eugene. They put him in a, a safe house, military safe house. Cookies in the bathroom with uh, 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 doing blow in the military safe house of state security. <laughs> and I remember saying to myself, this is the best blow I've ever done because I got state security, the head of state security outside the door of the bathroom and I'm in a safe house. Anyway, that's cookie. So anyway, we interview this guy. He confesses it all, whatever. So you'll hear the story. I'm not going to tell that whole story. But what, afterwards, what, what, what was what stood out the most from that interview? Well, he confessed that he worked for the CIA, which, of course, the CIA said, we don't know who he is. The airline was a CIA. Air America. Air America. Yeah. This, he was completely disavowed by the CIA, by the U.S. government, by the U.S. embassy. They but completely denied him. We don't know. him, <laughs> But he's got everything. So the pilot has a briefcase, the dead pilot. So the Sandinistas gathered up all this evidence. The Hazifu story, that's separate. I'm just going to tell you about the Iran-Contra and the evidence. So they've got all this evidence, and they've got it all logged in, from the parachute that, he, he, that saved his life to the pilot has a briefcase full of documents, papers, all this kind of shit. They had already logged it in. He said, Cookie, I said, can I look at some of this evidence. I didn't realize I was going to be the only person to have access to this evidence. Well, one of the pieces of papers was a business card that was in this pilot's briefcase. And it's a Swiss bank. It's a vice president of the Swiss bank. And on the back is a series of numbers. But the Sandinistas put business card and on the back a phone number. I knew it wasn't a phone number, Danny. Danny. It was a huge bunch of numbers. 
I knew this had to be a Swiss bank account. So I'm saying to myself, what is this lowly pilot doing with a Swiss bank account? Okay? Eugene didn't know anything about it because he was just a kicker. So I take the card. I, I, I gank the card. I put it in my pocket. What? Yeah, well, I gank it. Well, I wouldn't have gotten in trouble even if they would have known. But they, they thought it was a phone number. Mm -hmm. So I go back to my office. I call the Swiss bank. I ask for the vice president, whose name is on the card. And I'm like, look, I know you can't give me any information on, you know, bank accounts or names or anything. But would it be okay if I read you... A, a series of numbers, if you could just tell me yes or no, it could be a bank account. So I read off the numbers, he goes, yes, and slams down the phone. Now, I've got a Swiss bank account number, still don't know what I've got. Call CBS New York, Foreign Desk, they, they get Washington in, Miami in, it's a Swiss bank account. That was how Cookie blew up Iran-Contra. Not a year later, congressional hearings are being held on uh, uh, all the, the Swiss bank account, the money, why was, what was up with that money. It was to secretly fund the Contras. So yes, I did blow up So it was a story. CIA bank account. <clears throat> well, but they did. The smart thing, it wasn't in any government person's name. It was in the pilot's name. No way. Way, dude. Way. Did we ever find any more information about that bank account, like how much money was in it? or Swiss bank account, no. But there were hearings that later it got blow, blown up, you know, that this was what was happening. And there was a, a committee, a commission, and they they realized that thirty million dollars had been uh, accrued, but eighteen million of it was missing. Of course, that eighteen million had right. been sent to the Contras. Right. And eighteen million now is peanuts, but well, at that didn't, time, didn't with the Iran Contra scandal? I know the story with the hostages, but didn't we like this is? Didn't we do it through? This is how it happened. Israel. This we, is how it happened. Reagan. There's. First, there's the, that hostage situation in Iran, remember? Right. But that's over. So then while Reagan is president, another set of hostages were being held by Hezbollah. Okay? Yes. So Reagan wants to get them out, but we don't have the money or anything to get these guys out. And he said that he won't, he won't negotiate with terrorists. He says that publicly. Right. So that's when they come up with the scheme. Let's sell weapons to our mortal enemy, Iran, from already the other hostage situation. Mm. Let's sell them weapons. We'll take that money and we'll f secretly fund the Contras. So that happens. But they ended up getting more money from Congress than they needed. They got like 30 million. But no, they no, they didn't get money from Congress. Where did they get the to money? To fund the Contras. They the got DOD. the money from from selling the the weapons to Iran. So that scandal blows up. So Reagan's fucked. So let me so correct me if I'm wrong here. I want to make sure my understanding of it is correct. See there's two they, pieces to that. They went through so the so the the 
Reagan administration went through, this is my understanding, went through the Department of Defense to get funding to pay for the weapons through Israel to get for Israel to give the weapons to Iran. And they got $30 million. The $30 million was sent through to, to free those hostages that Hezbollah is holding. OK, right. but $18 million of the money disappears. Right which was later found out that it went to right. the Contras. So once that's blown up, now Reagan and the government need to come up with another revenue stream. And that's when... Once they, they burn through the $18 million. And And the, everybody finds out. Right, right. Publicly. Right. So then that's when somebody comes up with the brilliant idea, hey, let's take these drug dealers away from the DEA and let's let them continue doing their business. They could, we're never going to bust them. They could fly, bring as much coke as they want into this country. And who are these drug dealers? My old buddies from back in the day. So they're bringing, they're allowed to bring in Drugs all this from, cocaine. From where? From Colombia. Okay. Bring it all in and to their dealers in this country. Main one was my good friend Rick, Rick Ross out in L.A. Right. And, of course, they didn't know that Rick and, 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 and crew were then turning the coke into crack. So now the second stream of revenue is coming from the coke that the U.S. government is allowing to come in to this country what happens to that coke when it gets here is the crack. Rick and all his people start saying we can make more money if we turn this into crack, right. into rock. So the money that was made not from the crack, but the money that was made from the coke that was being delivered to Rick and friends. So Rick was paying for it? Well, yeah, he had to buy it from uh, from my friends. But he got it dirt cheap, you see? So now you got a new stream of hush money from the Coke to fund the Contras. See, people think the Iran-Contra was just one thing, the weapons. The weapons got blown open, so that's why they had to turn to the cocaine. So they just capitalized on this amazing, amazing drug sales system that was going on between South America and the United States. They didn't necessarily, they didn't, it wasn't any of their money. It wasn't their drugs. They just knew it was happening. They let it happen and they turned a blind and eye. Who with was these the planes. one bringing it in? Is this, is this when Barry Seal started coming on he the He was scene? one of my husband's employees. Barry Seal was? Yeah. So who's bringing in the Coke? Who's being allowed to bring in the Coke? My old buddies. The guy that gave me away at my wedding. My son's uncle. My son's father. So when I got the job at CBS, I told him, I will cover any story you send me to except drug stories. And only one person ever asked me why. Because the rest of CBS, they're like, oh, okay. Only one person said to me, why will you not do drug stories? I said, I got a kind of a shady past. And I didn't want to be one of those people on the other side when they're going in busting the people because I used to be on the other side. Were you afraid of getting whacked? No, because I would never do that. I would never cover that story. Right. 
So when the, 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 the drug thing comes out, who's involved and who's in charge of it? My old childhood friends. My son's father. My, you know, it's mm. like it, it came back to bite me. Not in a bad way because I was still getting blow from them. You know, it's like I still had ways of getting anything that I wanted. Mm. Yeah. That guy from that smuggler book behind you, his name was Roger Reeves. Yeah. And he uh, he was a uh, airplane pilot. He, I like, know he, of he him. Wanted, he wanted to be a missionary pilot. He wanted to like fly and like support missionary groups and stuff like that. Religious, big religious guy, southern guy, and uh, he. It didn't explained pay. to me how easy it was to yeah. make money back then. It didn't like, pay well. He was like a teenager, and they were like, hey, you want a million bucks for the weekend? Just fly this weed down to Mexico. And they would throw shit. Or go pick up this weed from Mexico and I bring it back. I remember they would throw in the, the kilos. We didn't deal with weed. It was all blow. And they would throw in pills. Uh, remember the quaaludes? Oh, yeah. That. And they'd throw in emeralds. Just a bunch of emeralds, you know? I had a bunch of emeralds. Jewelry, made it to jewelry, but so w back to my story with Roger, real quick. I'll finish it up. But Roger basically, he eventually met Barry Seal and he hired him to be one of his pilots and let Barry fly one of his planes. And at one point, Barry, uh, Barry talked. At one, he well, had a big mouth. Right, right, right. Boom. That's a crazy story. And too. I told him, "You're going to be killed if you keep talking like this." Mm -hmm. I warned him. So there's a, there's a, uh, Stephen, if you can search for this clip on YouTube, it's a short, it's one of the short clips on the clips channel. If you search for, uh, Roger Reeves, Barry Seal story, it's a quick video clip I'd like to show you. Okay. Anyways, so Barry told Roger, he said, I have a, basically a hall pass to land my plane in Mena, Arkansas anytime I want. Oh yeah. It costs us a million bucks and we fly in and out scot-free. And by the way... I'm going to dinner with the governor next weekend. Yeah. It was big business. Crazy. I mean, I had unlimited amounts of blow, money. So it's a crazy story about how Barry basically asked him to meet him for dinner in Santa Barbara. But anyways, they so he met him at a restaurant when uh, Barry was trying to get him to testify. And he was like, and Roger was like, there's no way, Barry. There's no fucking way. He goes, Roger, he, he goes, Barry, they're going to kill you. And then, and then Roger sat down and he, he like, Pause for a minute. He's like, something's off here. And he looked around, looks at the people all next to him, and he goes, Barry, are those all agents? And Barry goes, every single one of them. Fucking and asshole. then he said, Barry, just like tears kept coming down his Fucking face. Fucking asshole, man. And then the agent came down and sat at their table with both of them, with Barry and Roger. And then the, the FBI agent said, uh, or the DE agent, whatever kind of whatever kind of spook he was, he said, Roger, he's like, you have two choices. He's like, you can fly with us to Miami tomorrow in chains, or you can fly first class with your wife. The choice is yours. <sighs> Crazy. Dude, he ended yeah. up not testifying, but he he, he went to prison. He went to prison for like 18, of course. or no, no, like 40 something years. I was never, fortunately, I was never confronted with that. I never got in trouble. Mm -hmm. I was never arrested. We did go on the lamb a few times, you know, from Miami to San Francisco, from San Francisco, uh, L.A. But they were looking to speak to me, okay? But I was the wife, you know? And then what does, the, what does a woman know, mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing? Right. Well, I knew everything. But 
There was never a moment where any of these guys ever doubted me. And that's why I had a seat at the table. The only woman. And there's a great story you're going to hear, I think, in episode two. Where Episode two is all about Pablo, right? Yeah, well, there was a, a, a thing that happened. Some indictments came out against my husband and my brother-in-law. And it was in the paper in New Orleans. And they, you know, they, they, they weren't even in New Orleans. That's another story. But the, what basically happened was we had to disappear. We, you know, we went on the lamb and never ever did they doubt me. But one time in Miami, we're all at a table, Pablo, he's at my house. And a kid from New Orleans got busted, one of our employees, because I had, but I always told my husband, don't ever deal in New Orleans. Stay out of New Orleans. That's my stomping grounds. Stay out of it. He didn't listen to me. So this kid gets busted and he's in jail. He happens to be, and I'm not going to, and I will never say who it was. Suffice to say, he was the son of a very high-ranking government official in Louisiana. So the next thing that happens, this kid won't talk. He won't name names. So his father, who's a very powerful man, sees that his son is throwing away his life. So he starts his own investigation to see who supplied the blow that got this, his kid in prison. And the kid kept telling him, Dad, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. And there was a night, we we're all at a table, and somebody comes up with the brilliant idea, let's get the kid killed and the father killed. And I stood up and I said, nobody's getting killed in Louisiana on my watch. It's my stomping grounds. Next thing we know, it isn't just drug charges, it's murder. And Pablo was there. And Pablo was quiet, told me to sit down, calm down, and he whispered in my ear, he goes, you're right, we're not gonna do it. And you'll hear what he says in episode really? two. He says something in episode two, you know, you should be running this show, something like that, and I said, I already am, dude. Not dude, I didn't say dude. <laughs> I wish you would have said dude. <laughs> but there was no dude then, but that's the relationship I had with these guys. They knew that they could trust me. They knew I wasn't like the, that chick that, oh, my boyfriend, he gets all kinds of blow and I get all kinds of money. Big women have big mouths, big mouths. You wouldn't hear me say one peep about anybody to, any, to anybody. What was he like in person? I liked him. But I didn't know it was Pablo Escobar, the Pablo Escobar that we all know of now. He was just my friend. And we called him El Jefe, the boss. I didn't call him Pablo. I called him the boss, El Jefe. Oye, Jefe, pasame la mierda para acá. <laughs> and he loved the shit out of me because I was pretty. I was really hot. He liked, young, he liked young, hot women. But he never treated me that way. I was one of the guy. I was one of the guys, okay? And he always respected me. 
Here you go. He always respected me. There you go. Never was inappropriate with me. I mean, they were, you know, bad boy jokes and shit like that. But they always, they always believed in me and trusted me. And there was no way I would ever say anything to anybody about any of them. Pablo was not, I liked him. He was, he was quiet. He didn't party that much. He liked to drink more than anything else. But he was just my friend, like Rick. Ricky, he was just my friend. I didn't know it was Rick Ross, you know, freeway Rick Ross. He was just my friend. And I met Rick while I was working with CBS because when I'd go to the U.S. for vacation, I'd always meet up with my ex-husband so he could give me some blow. And one of the times I was in Miami, he said, oh, Chino, he's in L.A. You got to go to L.A. if you want to see him. So I flew out to L.A. and that's how I met Ricky. Mm. Just partying and I just always loved hanging out with the bad boys, you know, the seedier, the shadier the situation, the more comfortable I was. And nobody would suspect it because I looked so normal, I guess, you know, and I could say the right things. That's where the education privilege and that kind of thing helped could talk myself in and out of anything remember how yeah. i got the job so did that, you didn't you party with mother Teresa? well no partying she oh, didn't you guys party. didn't do blow together no <laughs> she came to nicaragua and we met we did an, an interview with her what we, was she doing down there just coming to you know help the poor and meet with church people and stuff like that and um so was this part of uh, one of your reporting gigs it was and it turned out to be a real emotional one for myself and my son. And she was that kind of t type of person. She just kind of moved you. Don't get me wrong. I'm not religious or anything, but I could feel shit coming from her, you know, like this. I don't know. And she said some things to me privately that really affected me. And like what? we're getting ready to do an exclusive interview with her. She'd already kind of, her, her spirit, her, her presence had already kind of gotten to me. And so but the camera crew's setting up and she looks at me and she's like, come here, Cookie. And she, I said, so what's up? I didn't say what's up, but she says, you know, can I tell you something? I said, sure. She said, I think she's going to tell me something about, you know, what we're going to say in the interview. And she says, I want to tell you something. Your generation thought that y'all were here to change the world, to change a bunch of people, to change the world. She goes, maybe you were just here, put here, to change one life, and that life is yours. Whoa. Whoa. Like, even now, telling you the story, the hair stands on the goosebumps. And my son was there, and she took my son and cradled his face in her little tiny hands, and it was just really like like a spiritual shit, you know? And I'm not religious. I don't get into all that. I'd already interviewed the Pope three times. He never did anything for me, you know, spiritually. But she kind of affected me. Hmm. She had that effect on people. And there's a, uh, if you go to my site, the Journalista site, there's pictures. I'll send you some pictures, some good pictures. Okay. 
of how, her. How did um, this whole journalista thing come about? Well, I've been talking about this shit for 30 years. For 30 years, I've been saying, oh, we got to do something with this, you know, maybe a movie. I, I had the idea in my head. I had a different title. It was going to be called Well-Informed Sources. You know, Well-Informed Sources have just told CBS News. And my Well-Informed Sources could be the prostitute on the corner to a military guy, to the, my gardener, to... My sources were everywhere. So about 13 years ago, a mutual friend introduced me to my brilliant partner, uh, narrator, creator of Journalista, Steve Estab. And he gets told the story about me and he says, that's, that's bullshit. So we set up a meeting and I'm telling him more stories. And he says to me at the end of the meeting, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I think you're full of shit. I don't believe anything you're saying. I'm like, okay, meet me here tomorrow at noon. So the next day I showed up with what now we infamously call the box. And that box had everything in it. Press passes, newspaper articles, books that I'm in, pictures, you name it, it was in there. He took it home. I said, just don't, don't look at it here. Take it home. Give me a call when you're ready to talk. And it didn't take him but 24 hours. And he still hadn't gotten through everything. He says, we got to talk. So he, it was like, we got to do something with this. And at the time, podcasts were starting to come out. We didn't know we were going to do a podcast. We went from movie to TV, we don't know what we're going to do. We even thought about a book. And uh, that's how it started, 13 years ago. Wow. It took Tarantino 15 years from the moment he c conceived of Big B uh, Kill Bill to the moment he made it. Mm -hmm. This shit takes a long time, dude. Yeah, that's a lot takes a long time and now that we've been so successful and the reviews and the, the 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 ratings have just been off the charts now people are calling us we're not pitching shit to anybody people are calling us have any of your uh, your old friends reached out to you since I'm you've still released friends them? with my old friends. you still talk to them all still talk to me. What do they think about you? Talking now, are you about talking them? about the drug people or the Sandinista people? Any of them. All of them. I'm still in touch with everybody. What do they think about your podcast? I was scared that some people, the Sandinistas, they don't care because they think it makes them look good. Okay? But my friends from Nicaragua, they're, they were scared that I might be naming names because I know all these people's secrets. I'm like, it's not that kind of podcast, okay? Because, you know, Ortega has really clamped down on people. Mm -hmm. Even rich people are being thrown into prison, okay? And uh, then you had my drunk friends because I'm talking about them. But I let them know. I said, look, I'm going to mention your name. It's nothing that hasn't already been said publicly. Can he bring up Norwin Manessas? Yeah. How do you spell it? N-O-R-W-I-N and Manessas. M-E-N-E-S-E-S. -E -E 
M-E-N-E-S-E-S. Manessas. Department yeah. of Justice. Norman Manessas conducted large-scale drug trafficking in Nicaragua and the United States for many years. That's who gave their... me away at my wedding. And my wedding was at his home in, in San Francisco. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. That's the wedding Pablo was at? That's the wedding Pablo was at. And it was in San Francisco? San Francisco. And Norbing and I are still friends. Where's he at now? Can't say. Down south? Can't say. Wow. Cannot say. Do you ever go down to Nicaragua? Of course. How often do you go down there? Well, I haven't been down since the pandemic because that kind of threw... I was there in 2020, my daughter's wedding, and... Uh, some people might have been at that wedding that we've talked about today. And uh, I haven't been there since, but I plan on going next year. But more beach type thing. Yeah. I have a lot of friends. And I'm still untouchable. Are you? I'll always be untouchable, no matter what side is in power, because I still know everybody from everywhere. And, you know, some people think it's a, a journalist thing, but it, it started way before that since i was a kid is it safe for americans to go down there to hit the go to the beach absolutely they don't get stuck. i've got a friend right now at the beach in nicaragua wearing a journalista t-shirt doing this sending pictures uh the I, last couple of days don't the, i had a friend that went down there a couple of years ago to, uh to, on a surf trip and they said that yep. they had a lot of trouble with the cops there like pay, having to pay off the cops trying to stop them and well the stopping yeah but once you're at the beach you're home free <laughs> yeah from the airport to the but beach but you have to pay the these poor these cops they don't make a lot of money so, so it's, it's they'll, almost they'll, like you're helping them so they, they'll they'll pull you over and they'll threaten they to detain they, you and but they won't they won't because you're going to give them a couple of bucks but it's very safe a couple of bucks how many how much Hundred bucks, ten bucks, ten bucks? bucks. Oh wow! Whatever you give them, dollars rule. Dollars rule. Wow, interesting. Yeah, yeah. But I plan on going next year. But we got a friend there right now, an American. He's on the surf beach wearing the journalista T-shirt. That's amazing. It's amazing. That's cool. And it's it's amazing because that's the way Cookie's life's been. My life has been like that from the day I was born. It's always been crazy, exciting. Now is I've become, or I am the person I always fought not to be. Quiet, in the background. Well, not since Journalista. Did you ever but... meet any of the Ochoa brothers? Mm-mm. Roger was telling me one of them. I think it was George. He's down in uh, somewhere right now. Columbia, maybe? Yeah, I did and not. he's got like a big horse breeding operation. He's yeah. making tons of money. You mean Ochoa or Ochola? O Ochoa. The guys. Yeah, the guys, I know the Ochoas. The Ochoas, yeah. Yeah. The guys are responsible for getting, for whacking Barry. Yeah. Yeah. I know them. Apparently, those guys are just living, like the one guy, George, he's just living it up right now. All my friends are doing just fine. The <laughs> ones that aren't dead are doing just fine. Mm. There was a lot shit. of money to be made in the 80s, but they started making the money in the late 60s, 70s as local in Nicaragua, you see? And then they diversified and went mm. out of the country. Because Nicaragua's always been a stopping point for drugs going in and out. Mm. The only difference was that during the Sandinistas, you couldn't get any drugs as civilians, even though it was still coming through. Mm. 
I told you I had to fly to the U.S. and bring the shit into Nicaragua, man. Who do, who does that? Yeah. And nobody was ever. I do have a great story, a drug story, though, during the Sandinistas. You want to hear it real yeah, quick? Yeah, let's hear it. So I'm in my office one day at the Intercontinental Hotel. Not only the CBS offices were there, but also my private quarters. And you got to understand, Danny, I was raising two kids. I had two kids there. You know, Chino's son, the drug dealer's son, and my daughter from another father, another husband. So I get a knock on the door one day, and it's this, you know, unassuming guy. And he says, you're cookie. I said, yeah, I know I'm cookie. He says, can I talk to you? And I said, sure, come on in. He says, look, I'm from state security. And I'm like, and what? He says, well, we got a problem. He says, we got about 20 society kids in jail right now. We rounded them up, you know, for drugs. And, and what? What does that have to do with me? He says, well, the problem is they're all mentioning your name. They all know you. They all party with you. I know a lot of people. But if they're saying I party with them, they're lying. I do not party. He goes, you don't understand what I'm saying here. I said, I don't care what you're fucking saying. If you're accusing me of something, I'm denying it. He says, calm down. You don't understand what I'm about to tell you. Okay, what? He says, I work for state security. We don't care what you do. You can do whatever you want. In fact, if you ever need anything... We will supply it. What we don't want is for you to be partying publicly with people who can say your name. We want you to keep your partying private in your room, in your office, and we'll help you with whatever you need. I'm like, wait, let me get this straight. You are telling me that you are going to give me government-sanctioned party favors for me to do as long as I'm discreet? He says, yes. And I will be around. From what government? Sandinista. Sandinista government. I will be around and I'll be watching, taking care of you. If you ever need anything, here's my number. And I'm like, wait, is this guy for real? Is this an ambush? Is this a trap? He was for real. Unfortunately for him, six months in, he, we had him corrupted, too. He was doing blow and everything. But this is how it was. This is how my life has always been. Never had to fly back to the States to get my shit again. That's amazing. Holy shit. Right? It was like, are you serious? But look, anything that goes up must come down. Episode 8 is Cookie's dark and epic downfall because I came down. I came crashing down. And we're not going to talk about it because I want people to hear, listen to it. But I'm here today. I survived all that shit. You're hearing the shit. I'm still sort of living it because I'm reliving all my, my PTSD is back. But it's been cathartic talking about it. And... I just want everybody to know we're everywhere now. We're on iHeartRadio. We're on 
Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it. Pandora, we're everywhere. We need you to listen. There's nine episodes. Each episode is better than the last one. You're not going to believe it. You're going to say, man, that was an episode. The next one's better. It's, it's, it, it, the crazy stories you've heard me tell today, it's the tip of the iceberg. You've got, to, you've got to listen to this shit. And I'm telling all your listeners, this is the shit. This, this podcast is the shit. Well, thank you for coming on and telling your story. I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, I'll make sure to link your podcast below. <laughs> and uh, shout out to Steve Esteb, the creator, my partner, Sean Donnelly, and Jason Wagenspack. Uh, I couldn't have done it without these guys. Again, it's cooking with all the guys, you know. Yeah. But it's been a trip, Danny. It's been a trip getting this out there. And I've always been honest about who I am. And I think that's what the audience has loved, you know, that uh, no holes barred. Very interesting woman. Very interesting life you've lived. And uh, thank you. Thanks for sharing it. I really appreciate it. Awesome. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Sweet. Cool. That was awesome. That was, that was cool. That was great. Thank you.